Throughout her career as an educator in Ontario, Karen Close aimed to inspire her students through literature and visual arts. She loved to witness young people become better able to articulate themselves and to share their understanding with others through their writing and their art making. She passionately believes in the importance of storytelling to give us a, a way to know ourselves more deeply and to share our wisdom. So when she stepped away from the formal classroom, it was no real surprise that she brought this same desire to engage imaginations to her new community of Kelowna. In fact, in an interview with a local newspaper several years ago, she acknowledged a dream of helping to build the city into a centre for creative ageing and has fostered numerous local initiatives with that aim. Her passionate belief in the healing power of the arts and the importance of creativity on individual and community wellness is as strong as ever, and her definition of community has widened its reach as the online journal for creative aging she created in 2011, aptly named Saging, with creative spirit, grace, and gratitude, which now boasts readers and contributors spanning the globe. Karen, welcome, and thank you for agreeing to join me here in conversation. Thank you. So I, I, I wonder if we might start with this creative passion project, Saging, which I understand is now in its 14th year. Uh, tell, tell me a little bit about that origin. What, how did that come to be? Well, in point of fact, I had started a program at our local cultural centre and um, trying to encourage people to do to to come and share their stories of how what they were doing and, and working how they could work together to implement wellness benefits, and uh, that worked. But I realized people needed to think about it more quietly by themselves. And to be honest, that when uh, and there was a grant for that from New Horizons for Seniors that they gave to us to do this program. And then when that finished, um, the publisher that I worked with um, and have for a long time, we've done a lot of speaking engagements together. He said, I don't think you could handle a blog all the time, but what do you think about a four times a year publication? He said, I think the timing's right for this and we'll just do it online. And it really became very much part of the gift economy because it doesn't cost us anything to do what we can do, but with, you know, we just do it. And when people send their stories in and we edit them and put them in a good position, that's our gift to them. So this is really a, a volunteer service. And um, that opened people up. And at first people would, they, they would take it in different directions than I perhaps imagined. But I realized more and more, and they realized, they would say to me in emails, you know, I really got into myself by trying to write this article, which is, of course, my belief as an English teacher. And so we just kept doing it. Um, Sometimes, uh, Still, I will reach out if somebody, if I hear about an artist or a writer or whatever, somebody doing something that I think is creative and their story is worth telling, I will reach out to them. But more and more now we get people sending in to us and they have an idea about what we're about. And so that, that's just, it just keeps going along. And it's very interesting. We seem to just get stories that come together. I have this great faith that there's some kind of energy out there that the stories seem to relate together in somewhat of a theme and so when I get them together I organize them under that we do send out a suggested theme but mostly the message is 
tell us how you're growing through your creative spirit. And the and the notion of saging. Can you talk to us about the, the birth of that, of, of the name of the journal itself? Yeah. Because yeah. I know um, it's well, dear to you. Yeah, it is. And um, I had, as a teacher of art history, right, I was very aware of the Greeks and the period. I think that the Greek, the period of Greece, about 750 BC, the high period of the Hellenistic period, I think it's called, mm -hmm. um, there was a great understanding of what each of us could do and a great respect for individuality and um, sharing our talents. Like the great sculptors at that time, that they were never paid. It was a, a contribution that you made, much as Aboriginal folk do with um, totem poles, right? That's mm -hmm. where they are expressing ideas to share. And that all appealed to me. And so then I was reading a book um, that was called From Aging to Saging, A wow. New Paradigm for Growing Older in the 21st Century. And it was written just at the end of 1990. And um, I read it dutifully and thought, oh, this I agree with this. But it was very much based in meditation. And I felt that they were not addressing the uh, what I think the kind of meditation that comes to you through engagement in a creative activity. I think it's a kind of meditation. There seems to be a little bit more cognizance of that even in the last decade that, mm -hmm. that making doing something particularly with your hands is meditative and can open you to yourself. Yeah. And so I decided I would call it um, saging. Uh, the Saging Journal. And then some of the people that were working with me tacked on the second part of it. And it's a Saging with, well, I had it Saging with Creative Spirit. And they felt I should tack in with grace and gratitude because it seemed to express all we wanted to do as we were reaching out to people. Yeah. And it is, it's something in that reaching out that I suppose goes back to what, what I shared of the joy you got in watching any learner of any mm -hmm. age, any creative, uh, a creatively engaged individual who, who's able to tap in. And maybe this is the meditative tap in, in order to share out. Um, you know, it's very interesting. When I finished teaching, I, um, became involved with two artists that I knew about. I'd seen their work, Riva and Leonard Brooks, down in San Miguel. And San Miguel was quite, at that point, this was in the 70s, a, quite a you know burgeoning arts community. And now people from all over, it's very popular for people to go to San Miguel and take art courses and so on. And I had purchased one of Leonard's paintings at this, at a show in Windsor, Ontario, actually. And I was fascinated by him. And many, then I just kept coming up against, I found his books, I found, and, and I got in, intrigued with the couple. The decision to go to San Miguel wasn't to go to see them, but I went with a friend that was a dear friend. And I, you know, I talked about them and she said, you know, you should try to contact them when we were down there. Oh, I I didn't know that I actually could do that, but I did. And I just finally looked in the phone book and called them. And they were, Reva in particular, people felt she was getting into dementia, but that she was very welcoming. She answered the phone and said, I'm sending the gardener to get you when you're coming over and so on. <laughs> well, I got a great opportunity sitting with her because she, in fact, had given up her 
talent. She, there's, her work is in the um, Art Gallery of Ontario and quite well recognized and recognized by uh, an exhibition in Paris and all over the world. Hmm. Leonard, her husband, had been a Canadian war artist. And he had wow. said, when she got to be a little bit recognized, there's room for only one artist in this family. So she stopped. And she devoted her life to write, helping him do his books and so, you know, promoting his works and all of those kinds of things. And so when I met her at the age of 89, she had disappointments. And mm. I realized what it was, what it had done to her to give up her creative spirit. And that made me sort of, I felt a coming together of what I felt I fostered in young people, mm -hmm. but realizing that to re-engage seniors is equally as important. Mm -hmm. And um, as I say, I, 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 she was, people would say she was going into dementia. As I sat with her for a very long time, I thought what she decided to do was not by not play by the be nice to everybody rules any longer. She said exactly what she thought. And <laughs> Good for I, I her. I felt that she, you know, spent 60 years playing by the rules. Yeah, somebody else's rules. Yeah. yeah. And she just yeah. didn't care anymore. And people don't like that. Mm. So it's much easier to think the person's demented than the fact that what you're expecting from them is a bit selfish or a bit um, yeah. Correct. And I really feel quite strongly about that. My book um, that I wrote about her was on a course at York University. And I had a, and it was called Healing Fiction. And one of the students that was taking it wrote to me to say, you know, I'm studying, going, hoping to go into medicine, but I really find it quite intriguing. You're almost implying dementia is a choice. Dementia is a choice. And I said, well, I guess I am sort of that you just can't be bothered anymore. Hmm. And he said, I find this quite intriguing. And a friend of mine yesterday with, that we were painting together and she just returned from spending a long time with her mother. And we, she and she's a retired nurse and we both paint together. Her mother is in her early nineties and has advanced quite far in dementia. But she's saying, you know, it's interesting. We began to see that the mother just wanted to get into that state that she and I both find we can do when we just relax into what I call doodling, reform work. And the mother, she wasn't painting or doing that, but that's what she was doing with her life. It was just freeform, whatever comes up. And the other thing she said that was quite fascinating that she's noticed with her mother is she's gotten quite mischievous having been a very rule-bound person all her life, a nurse and so on and so forth. But she just was having a great time when she'd do things that she knew was a bit mischievous. And uh, <laughs> so I feel as though I'm, I'm touching a little bit on a problem <laughs> of the day in wellness. I hear you celebrating the uniqueness and the unique truth in each of us. And, you know, you shared with me that as a as a lifelong educator, you've often wondered at how our education systems have, have kind of prioritized knowledge over the evolution of consciousness in, in your, in your, which is described, as you pointed out by the Dalai Lama, as heart education. And as a result, something that has been missing in addressing and educating the whole person, really speaking to the whole person. And there's often been little attempt to invite, let alone build upon the learner's awareness of those unique truths, those unique potentials and how they might evolve. Say more about that, you know, as well, you look I back. I think being a teacher 
is a really, really important thing. It's like, uh, it's like a parent in that sense of responsibility to those. But at the risk of being criticized, I do feel that the teaching profession got more concerned with what they thought was important to teach kids as opposed to maybe what was important to foster in those you were teaching. And I was always taken by Khalil Gibran's, um, you know, in The Prophet, where he speaks on teaching, on this, on that. And on teaching, he, he very strongly says the job of the teacher is not to plant in the student what you know, but rather to figure out how to pull out of the student what they know. And agreed, I have more leeway in doing that with English and art. But I just love the number of kids who were considered badly behaved frequently and I know I had a principal that said we'll just put them in Karen's class see what'll happen with them <laughs> and um, I like that mm-hmm. and I because I I felt my job was teaching them to get to know themselves mm. through their writing I also am a pretty much a stickler about grammar and thing and sentence structure and stuff like that but they were more ready to agree when you started when they had something important to say and you were showing them how to say it in the most succinct and clear way than if you teach them grammar and all that stuff. And I feel exactly the same way with art. I don't like everybody thinks, oh, I'm going to take an art course. What are you going, you know, what they want it laid out by the teacher. And in an art course, it just amazes me how many people will put their hand up, adults this is, and say, what do you want me to do? How did you want this? you know, those kinds of questions. I do. I don't want you to be <laughs> for you. me. I want you to experiment and discover yourself. Yeah. But that's a carryover. Our education system has taught there's one right way to do it and the teacher knows the answer and I'm supposed to emulate what the teacher's telling me. Mm-hmm. I don't mm-hmm. think that's education. All the way up the system, unfortunately, when, when, yes. when somebody who's never met me is actually going to uh, provide me with with a standardized test and, mm-hmm. and, and not, not have the opportunity to really see me and, and hear me and, and be curious about my, my learning. So, you know, you and I have, have some paths that have crossed in that way. And both of us too, I think our, our great pleasure, obviously, and great fortune have had the opportunity to be within classrooms where we were able to really engage and invite the uniqueness of each individual. Well, that for me, my subjects, and then when I moved out of the public system into the independent system in St. Catharines, Ontario at a boarding school, and I was a housemaster, so I had my 50 girls that I was influencing in whatever way, but I also um, was very fortunate that the administration could see the benefit that I was getting in getting involvement from kids who hadn't necessarily been involved so therefore they were pretty open like I wasn't asking to do anything outrageous but um, my approach and what I wanted to do they were very willing to to allow me to do that and um, that was very fortunate in my last years it really made the end of my teaching career wonderful I felt good this is what I wanted to do funny enough funny quick story my day of uh, the kids um, I went back I was teaching grade 13 and then I went back in Ontario at that time it existed and I went back and taught in middle school the boarding school went from grade 
five to 13. And so I was teaching the five to eight. And on graduation day, um, this little boy who was out, one of these ones that had a reputation for always getting in trouble, but he was just full of energy and he loved it. And so he comes charging up after um, the graduation ceremony and said, ma'am, ma'am, you have to come out. You taught my father. I've been there. <laughs> I thought, well, this means I'm done. I've come full circle. <laughs> That's a that's a great story. You you brought into to the conversation a moment ago the verb doodling, and I know that you've shared with me a little about your own process uh, with your own visual art, and, and maybe it's the same with your own uh, written work. But but let let's just focus on the on the painting and the visual work at this point. Talk to me about doodling for you, and and how that connects to the way you have tapped into your way of being as an artist. I know I shared my poem with you. Can I share it? <laughs> of course, absolutely. I will do that because I hope it succinctly captures what it is that I'm feeling. When I doodle, I am. I feel my heart dance. My soul starts to prance. I am a blue rider astride freedom. My emotions soar, connected to spirit, I roar. I am a creator in her kingdom full of courage to thrive. I am alive with no rules, but my own, I have grown. And it's that freedom that is a wonderful thing that, that doodling allows me. Mm. And I do notice I tend to do it faster than most people do. And, and I was just looking at that yesterday. Um, there's a life force in anybody's doodling, right? My life force seems to be particularly fast and all over and strong. I'm <laughs> not a gentle. And we were talking about this yesterday. I think it's because I'm so enthusiastic about what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And I'm quite a believer in the, the real meaning of enthusiasm. I call it the God shift within. I think it means, I, I think the root is entheo, right? The God within. Mm -hmm. I've just decided to call it the God shift within. But mine is quite, it's, it's driven. And so that's why it brings me such joy. But if you're trying to do anything that somebody else is telling you to do, doesn't bring. Hmm. Um, and again, it comes back to that place of there is no uh, answer from the outside to the question, am I doing it the way it's supposed to be done? Right. Uh, only you know that yourself. And I, I love the way it feels good. Yeah, yeah, it, fe it feels true. Whether, you think it lo whether it looks good or great or whatever, it's did it feel good? Yeah. Just in that, I spent um, the last three years of her life visiting um, Canadian artist Daphne Ojig. I don't know whether mm. you're familiar with that. Name. No. She was an Aboriginal artist the, of, of some repute. She won the um, visual Governor General's Visual Arts Award. She has the Order of Canada. She is one of the first people to have had a one-woman exhibition at the National Gallery, which I think was back in 2010 but I could have that year wrong. Um, anyway, um, I had become just new about her and I was glad to go in and visit her. And then we seemed to get a nice rapport going and she had stopped working because her works were are really quite valuable. And so those people in the, in the business didn't want it, her work devalued by something that she might do. And she was 90. Um, at that stage in her life. And she had um, very arthritic hands, like just, you know, really twisted. 
Anyway, I said, you know, but Daphne, you just, your whole life was about drawing. You've been doing it since you were 13 years old. And so I was away. And um, so we, she didn't have the opportunity to talk to me and she was getting a bit bored. So she decided to start doodling again. Well, when I came back, she was so excited to show and she doodled every day for the last two and a half years of her life with her twisted hand. She figured out a way to put the pencil in and to do, and she was so happy. And I thought it was such a beautiful story. They did write it up in our local newspaper, but people didn't get the fact that I was suggesting that this doodling was a health benefit that so many seniors could come from. And I thought her reputation would help to sell it, but it, it didn't really. Mm. In point of fact, um, they destroyed, ah. I, they destroyed all the doodles afterwards. I know. And there were some really quite great ones. I still, I, she always insisted, I think she must've known that at some level because it was very important to her that you must get here just if you just run in and take a picture of what I've done today. And mm. so I had them all in photographs, but not the originals. I have a couple that she gave to me, but not. Yeah. Yeah. But, and, and, and again, it isn't about the value I'm hearing for you. It's about the value it was for her. And, Absolutely. and so I, I, I want, I want to just press in there and invite you to talk a little bit more about the health benefits. I know that the, what, you know, one of, one of the, uh, workshop series that you have run uh in Kelowna is is called Heart Fit with an emphasis on the art um Heart Fit uh collaborative painting sessions um and I'm and I can't help but also be discouraged by the fact that there might be a dismissive attitude towards the term doodle Oh, I know I was, and so I, when I spoke about them, I frequently used the word Daphne doodles, bringing together her, you know, recognized reputation with the fact of the doodling. But I quite agree but that people will think, oh, doodling was what's something you did on the phone when you're that, it was of little importance. But then I ask, why would one have gone into doing that when they were on the phone? Like what was it inside them that wasn't coming out in their conversation with the whoever they were talking? I think doodling while you were on the phone was a common thing for people. Mm -hmm. and, and maybe maybe what they did find in their conversation was a relaxation that their hand needed to express. They literally could feel it in their hands. And so they just pick up whatever. And there is something in the action that is just very relaxing. And I, when with HeartFit, I would always point out to people, because I really think it's important to watch what you do. Like, look, look, look at what you do. Um, and as you do any action, you do all actions. So if you're drawing as though you're scared to death of what's gonna happen, that's not good. Well, doodling was that freedom, right? And so they could, if they stop and watch what they're doing and how it's making them feel, which is what I was emphasizing in my poem, that's the message. And that perhaps it's not this important knowledge that they took a course that they paid a lot of uh, money for that they're getting the most benefit from. Perhaps it's what's inside them that was waiting to come out. Right. Right. Yes. Waiting to come out. And I also thought this while you were sharing your poem. Um, uh, uh, 
it is also the opportunity. Oh, I know it was not just the sharing of the poem, but you're sharing your observation of your creative spirit being quite energetic and full yeah. of uh, whether whether I'm putting words to it, or, but I I heard or sensed joy. Yes. Um, and and it wasn't just the fact that that was it there. It was for the world to see. I'm also seeing the power of your knowing and getting to know and appreciate and celebrate your authentic self. And how it expresses. I think everybody should do. They're familiar with the expression, dance like nobody's watching. Yeah. And this is, let your hand move and draw like nobody's watching or going to judge or or anything. And uh, we have, I don't know how it started that we put art, visual art, into such a rarefied position that we thought everybody was supposed to, um, you know, draw like Leonardo da Vinci, or um, why did we think that was what everyone was supposed to do? Yet we recognized that he was a genius. Did we think that, like, why, why can't we see that it, we all have to be somewhere along that path mm-hmm. and and get the same joy out of it that, and it, it's always interesting to note, you know, the Mona Lisa was the only painting he ever did. And I don't think people know that. Um, it, he was a draftsman primarily yeah. and loved the freedom in his hands of expressing. And, and, yeah. and that's, so that's a kind of doodling again. Yeah, releasing ourselves from the bonds of whatever that is, as you say. I mean, you've mentioned in the conversation already that it might be, it may have been market pressures, <laughs> the, the capitalist yes. a, a, appeal of we have to hold value in this. So that sets, sets us apart. But yes. even from the very youngest uh, of age, when we have that sense of free play and the expression of our imagination without the awareness of it being performative. But as soon as it becomes performative, we're conscious of the response. And if the response is positive, then, you know, that's one thing. If it isn't, if we don't get it anymore, then maybe that is the beginning of that slippery slope towards I'm not creative. Right. And how despairing that is. (laughs) I started painting with my grandchildren when at about three months old, when they were in the high chair and they were getting food all over everything, right? And so I decided that if I cut, if I took a canvas that fit into the tray of the high chair and let them just slop around with their food that they were eating and they moved their hands beautifully. And then I would take it outside, (laughs) dry it in the sun and then spray it and spray it with um, urethane. And they still have the paintings up and And it's so, and everybody goes, who did that? That's, you know, it's a, it's an interesting piece of work. And the one I'm seeing in my head, particularly is my eldest granddaughter at three months old, all of them. We just have always, they'd love it when we'd be down South at the side of a swimming pool, but they had the paints on the floor and they could walk across and they could do whatever, and then jump in the pool when they were dirty. And certainly they're all really interested in making art. Unfortunately, they're not so interested in taking art as a course. They both, and my two eldest, the girls at 12 and 13 said very, I hope you're not disappointed, but we're not going to take art next year as our option. We don't want anybody to tell us what to do. You can't be disappointed. You set them on that course. (laughs) No, I wasn't. I thought I said, no, hey. 
because you'll do it. They do. Like yeah. one does are every day practically. Lovely. And I think those are just that encouragement is something I really urge all parents to do with way before they think they should. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the word that's coming back through to me, and I think it was in our conversation at the beginning, but it was how can we how can we encourage ourselves, allow ourselves the freedom to live in that draft form mm-hmm. longer, right? Mm-hmm. Not rush to the to the finished product or even to the product, but right. just stay in the process of of the draft. And even that's just even thinking that it's about a product yeah. as opposed to the doing. <laughs> yeah. And I think it sounds like you have um, engendered in your family, but also within your community, that sense of this is just what we do as human beings. This is this is us being us. I would, with HeartFed, I used on Sundays, I said it was my little church. I sent out a newsletter of, of what I was interested in and something they might like to look at. or And I spill in a bit of art history that take a look at this on, you know, that kind of thing. And we'll all get together on Tuesday. And we ran every Tuesday and come up, you know, just play with these ideas or not, if you don't feel like it. And people have told me frequently, and even because I've been finished for almost 10 years now, um, when I'll bump into them, I so miss that. Hmm. And I get letters saying, couldn't you start that again? And going, you have no idea how much energy that took at this point. But um, what they all said is, I don't know, I seem to talk more truthfully with the people that were sitting beside me or around me. And we would always put everybody's work up and take a look. And they felt they were more truthful in the context of heart fit. And that was their, uh, and I don't think they understood what I thought because uh, I thought the kind of work they were doing was more truthful and honest, but they just realized that they would talk to people, the person beside them. And it was so easy to do when they were just kind of moving paint around and doodling with their hands and so mm-hmm. on. And you know where that's taking me? It's taking me back to your um, off, off the cuff reference to a principal sending the kids that uh, were challenging to everybody else to Karen's class, because I suspect that in Karen's class, those kids also had the opportunity to connect with the person beside them or the person in front of them. And whether it was about what they were creating in their writing or on their canvas, it really didn't matter. They were alive and seen. As the year went along, I would purposely have them do collaborative or group projects. So, and, and really emphasize that they had to behave properly to one another. That's what I was teaching as opposed to what you're going to do. Yeah. Being human. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The opportunity to be who we, who, who we're meant to be. Uh, and uh, so, you know, uh, this, this brings me also back to something uh, that, that I discovered when, when you and I first met and it, for me, it's all, my fascination with sort of the, the concentricity of, of the ripples of influence and inspiration. And so when you mentioned that you had some history with, uh, with one of my earlier guests this year, Max Wyman, yes. um, I, I, you know, I, it didn't surprise me because I think you yourself said that we kept coming up against when you were referring to, to Leonard and Riva. I mean, there are reasons why we cross these paths. So how, how did you meet Max and and uh, and how did he inspire you in your work? Well, I was um, the president of our local arts council. And so I was sent to the 
whatever the meeting was that they would have each year where they'd bring in all the, the arts councils from across the province together. And um, he was the keynote speaker and he had just written The Defiant Imagination and he called it a manifesto for the arts. And this honesty and the need of arts that people, the need to express themselves perhaps in a defiant way against the system that they could do in art was a good thing, he felt, and, and I did too. And um, he, he's seen so much of all kinds of art. And I, 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 he's very open and knowledgeable about music, dance, everything. But he is aware that it's the most important thing is that they should um, have the opportunity to express themselves through art so much so that I think he's calling it a new cultural contract that yep. that's his new book. And I think that's what he spoke to you about is proposing. And the idea, like I can hear people, he proposes that perhaps people should get a thousand dollars tax credit to do whatever form of art or go to a play or do whatever they could do to increase their own understanding of culture. Because I think like me, he really thinks people need to be re-educated in what art is all about. That there's a very broad enforced misconceptions. And the, I said, I thought that the education system enforced that, but even just everything, people, they really do not know. And that's, you know, the old thing. Well, I don't know anything about art, but I know what I like. Well, that's just not good enough. It's just not good enough. Yeah. I know that when I met him and connected with him, I too, uh, my the, that that little back part of the brain at the back said, "Oh, yeah, but the, how will this be embraced by a society that's heading in this direction?" And the beauty of it was, if we don't build something, no one will come. And you know, he really holds to that. And I I hear you. Uh, I think I think I also saw something you said about you know you are an unabashed idealist. You you oh, believe absolutely. in in the the best possible uh, outcome. And. As I mentioned to you yesterday when I was painting with a couple of other girls, um, I said, why is it that I'm so, I don't know, I can't, I have to be powerful in my painting. I'm quick and I'm bold and it's, and I, and I said, perhaps that puts people off a bit because they can, anyway. Um, and I said, I, I started to think, and I, and I think that that's about a, a need that I think I'm showing idealistic values and so I feel so passionate about it that I do it with that everybody would feel better if they embraced some of the ideas the idealism of of what they have that's inside of them that needs to come out through whatever creative way they might choose to do and I remember, oh, it's probably 20 years ago, I heard Matthew Fox speak. Are you familiar with hmm. him? And he, he was quite, I think he founded Europa College, the creativity college down in Aspen area. Uh, anyway, um, this was down in the States and he was speaking and he started out with making the point that I think I'm perhaps one of the few, whatever position he was in the church, um, it, whatever title it was, who got, who has the distinction of being personally excommunicated by the Pope. 
because he was told that what he was saying was was not right. He was implying about the creative impulse that's in all of us as being part of what the creator, and it was just not what the church was all about. Yeah. And so, and then he went on to say, but he said, so I left the church and I'm doing and promoting creativity and what I believe is so important. And he said, but let me ask you, and this, as I said, was I think 20 years ago, he said, look on the streets, look at how kids, the what you're criticizing in their behavior and the beginning of tattooing their bodies and their purple hair and their piercings and all. like it was just starting. He said, you watch, that's going to get worse. When we've taken away their creative expression, they will fight and they will do it their way. And we might not like the direction that they go. And I, I think there's been lots of more current creative expression among young people that isn't what people thought they wanted where they mm -hmm. wanted it to go well it's how new movements emerge yeah throughout history right as as oftentimes a rejection of the status quo or rejection of but again in in this case as you're as you're referencing sometimes a rejection fueled by feeling shut down feeling yes. like uh, the voice has been taken away and the power has been taken away and i will not allow that so i will push back even harder and the one thing that we know they will find a way in their own bodies are the one thing that they that they can control yeah even yeah. if they have to sneak off to the tattoo parlor they can do that and there's mm. not much you can do afterwards but again you know uh, to, to to flip that to a place of celebration if that is a personal expression so be it uh, coming coming sort of back full full circle back and you've spoken so beautifully of the ways in which you have been able to celebrate a younger generation not just those that you taught but also those that you that you get to grandparent um, parent and then now grandparent um, as you think about the health benefit to those young people what would be the lasting statement you would want to make sure that our young people heard from the place of sageliness, if you will. What you want to do is okay. Don't worry about what you think you should do. Now, I don't mean this in the grand behavior. I mean, I appreciate the context. Yeah. And one of the things I did do with HeartFit is it was intergenerational. And, but, and, and I encouraged people to bring a child that was maybe a neighbor or a niece or a grandchild or whatever, but they could not bring them and drop them off. They had to come and paint with them. And that was a, that's a big statement. And that's what I think most, it was the most important thing. This is okay to do. I do it too. And we'll have fun together and get to know each other better by just making loose art and enjoying and discovering what we can do and yeah i think older people working with younger people is really important mm -hmm. i actually did something like that oh i guess it's about 20 years ago now too with a seniors facility here and i had two grade six because it was they were good and good young girls very interested coming into the seniors facility and most of them were all in um, wheelchairs and I put a canvas over the, their tables and so they could just sit up pull a wheel, and everybody was painting and it was really and I had such enthusiasm 
from those that got involved and the young girls were great with them. And, and then there were the groups sitting back all around. Well, who's paying for the paint? Is that coming out of our, like, it was just ridiculous. <laughs> and then, it, and then, then there was a suggestion that perhaps I could teach them so that they could make things that would be pretty, that could be used so they weren't waste, wasting the canvas, like those kinds of things. I was just, wow, they don't get it. And they sure couldn't plug into the joy that was a, very clear among the people that were doing it. And I had some of the daughters or that kind of thing drop in a couple of times, said, I just had to come today to see mom's been so enthusiastic about this. But it made, was not welcomed by the seniors facility. They didn't, they didn't like that. It was too um, messy. It, yeah. it was challenged the people to get other people that were uptight and didn't want to be involved. And they listened to them that they didn't want that. It wasn't that we were that noisy or anything. It was quite yeah. crazy. But they didn't think that should be happening in their space. Those hmm. that were opposed to it. Yeah. Very sad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and, the, and the ones for whom the measuring of success was a completely different criteria. Yes. I hear you say you're making a mess or what's the cost or this is making yes. too much noise. And the arbiters of the rules. Mm -hmm. Making a mess is what stops a lot of kids from learning how to paint. Yeah. Parents not wanting the mess mm. and all of that because it can be messy. <laughs> well, sure, sure. And Life is messy. <laughs> Let's just take that as a metaphor yeah. for a minute. Yeah. Life is messy and we engage. And I'm hearing you also say that the great power of this is that creativity can be the invitation to connection. Absolutely. Absolutely, that connection to ourself and each other and connection as we grow to, I think that's what the Dalai Lama's message is, right? That's the heart education. We grow together towards the higher values. And I think that's Max's message too in the compassionate, what's it called? The compassionate imagination. Yeah. Yes, art, making art and doing art and appreciating what other people have done not because of the value of it, but just teaches empathy and compassion. Yeah. And we feel better with our, about ourselves. We're more comfortable when we're engaged in being compassionate and understanding than, we're, than when we're criticizing. But still, we seem to have a greater propensity to criticize than mm. develop compassion. So there lies the hope. Yeah. And, and, and as you have shared and, and referenced Max as well, there lies the sense of importance and, and, and urgency to, to, to embrace a wider uh, acceptance of, of the value here for, for the heart, for, for the heart, but also the health of, of society. Unfortunately, though, it does mean disbanding, disbanding or abandoning many systems that we have in place. Like right. as Max even mentions the Canada Council and just go on and but that other countries have done it Australia and New Zealand I think and partly in the UK to, to just as a real re-education process on the arts. Hmm. Well, something to hope for something to hope for. It feels like that's a really lovely place to put put this down with something to hope for. And thank I you. Agree. I agree. Thank you. It's been great talking to you. 
If you are interested in accessing and reading any of the 47 issues of the online journal Saging, including number 46, in which my article appears about the Ellipses Thinking podcast itself, please visit saging.ca. S-A-G-E-I-N-G dot C-A. The Ellipses Thinking Podcast is a proud member of the Ordinary Podcasting Network and is produced by Greg and Jordan Dowler-Coltman. The show's theme music has been generously provided by Jordan Hart. And if you're interested in learning more about the ideas behind Ellipses Thinking, please visit dowlercoltman.com. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Thank you for listening. As a resident of Vancouver Island, I wish to acknowledge that I am a visitor on the traditional lands of the Coast Salish people, including the territories of the Snonoas and Qualicum people. The first peoples have been here for over 10,000 years, their ancestors still here with us in the sky, the land, the ocean, and all of the beings that share this sacred place. As a settler, I gratefully embrace the opportunities for growth as integral to my personal journey of collaboration and reconciliation as I learn and further support the possibilities that lay ahead. I remain committed to practicing my craft in a decolonized space.